At some point, church history, particularly in, in the history of the American church, something that, that theologians call easy believism started being taught as the doctrine of salvation. Easy believism teaches that you're saved when you make a decision for Jesus. Making a decision for Jesus could be explained away as inviting Jesus into your heart, coming to the altar, praying a prayer. But with easy believism, you make your decision and then you wait to go to heaven. That's it. There's no change of life. There's no newness of life. There's really nothing but you make this decision in whatever way you express it. And then you just do whatever you want to do until you die and go to heaven. Now, the fruit of easy believism is nominal or or cultural Christianity. Nominal or cultural Christianity is found uh, where there are people who have made some sort of profession of faith in Jesus, yet this professed faith has no legitimate impact on their daily lives. Uh, The fact that they have repented of their sins, they claim to have repented of their sins and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it makes no, no difference in them. In fact, for a nominal Christian or a cultural Christian, if, if they were to completely abandon their faith in Jesus, their lives really wouldn't change in any noticeable way. The only thing that's really Christian about their lives is the fact that they have a profession of faith in Jesus. But, but I wonder, if we were to just take God's word and we were to read it, the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, the Old Testament, God, everything. No commentaries, no sermons, no devotions, just just the Bible. Would we come to the conclusion that the salvation Jesus died to provide was making a decision and nothing else? Make a decision, live your life unchanged, not new. Wait to go to heaven. I don't think so. Nothing in God's word leads me to believe salvation is a decision we've made in the past that has no present impact upon our lives. In fact, God's word leads me to just the opposite conclusion. The salvation Jesus died to provide, it does change our eternal destiny, but it also changes who we are. It changes how we live. It has a a profound impact. On our daily lives. I'm convinced from God's word that a salvation with no profound impact on our daily lives has no impact on our eternal lives. If it doesn't change us here and now, it does not save us there and then. I want to show you this. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11 is what we're going to read. should be on page 873 if you've got a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now such were some of you, that you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and in the spirit of our God. Title of the message this morning is Wake Up to the Power of the Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are wonderful and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, today we, we do live in an age in which sort of nominal Laodicean, lukewarm, half-hearted Christianity. So many, so many areas, particularly, Lord, in, in the Bible Belt, it is, it is almost the official religion of the regions. And it pulls at us, Lord, because it has a kind of an appearance of godliness. But when you really look at it, it denies the power of God to make someone different. Father, we don't want to embrace that in our lives. We don't want to embrace that as evangelists, as people who try to reach others for Christ. Father, we want all that Jesus died to provide for us. We want all the change and all the newness. It's meant to be ours. So, Father, today I pray as we look at this passage that your Holy Spirit would come and he would wake us up to the power of the gospel. Wake us up to the kind of change it ought to make in our lives. Wake us up to see if that change is visibly present in our lives. Wake us up to realize if it's not, something ain't right. And we ought to repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, don't leave us the same today. You've promised in your word that it will not return void. It will accomplish that for which you've purposed it. Promise that your gospel is the power of God and salvation for all who believe. So, Father, let Holy Spirit come today and take your word and make it living and active. Make it sharper than any two-edged sword. To cut us where we need cutting. To convict us where we need convicting. Encourage us where we need encouraging. Strengthen us where we need strengthening. We all need something, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak your words and your ways for your glory. I don't want to be a hindrance in any way to what you want done. Have your way in all of our hearts and all of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. The city of Corinth was one of the most important cities of the ancient world, the Roman Empire. It was a commercial bridge between the east and the west. It attracted immigrants, merchants, freed slaves, retired centurions, visitors from around the world. The people who came to Corinth came from a variety of cultures and religions and lifestyles and languages. And for the most part, they kept their culture, their religion and the lifestyle they brought to the city. And this mixed cultures in Corinth, it led to a very permissive attitude towards morality. Really, it wouldn't be accurate to say they had a permissive attitude towards morality. It would be accurate to say that they they liked immorality. Uh, the city of Corinth, the name Corinth was synonymous with debauchery and gross immorality. The phrase to live as a Corinthian, it meant to live a drunken, debauchery-filled life. And what Paul's addressing in our text is the fact that the immorality of the culture had seeped into the church. We see some of them had lived in the very sins he addresses there, but they had been saved out of that. And yet what had happened was they were beginning to, to drift back into it. Or there were some who had never really been saved, and yet they had for some reason joined with the church, and they were still living in the very life that, that they were meant to be saved out of. Paul's words were meant to be a, a wake-up 
call for them. He was trying to to wake them up to the power of the gospel. He didn't want them to drift into what, what, what I called cultural or nominal Christianity because the gospel is more powerful than that. Verse 11 is really the key to the whole passage. This is what you were, but something happened and now you're different. They had believed the gospel. Through that, they had been changed. And the key truth for us to to grasp, to wake up to today, is the gospel is powerful to save sinners and sanctify saints. The gospel is too powerful to produce nominal or cultural Christians. The gospel produces fully devoted disciples of Jesus. Now, nothing else can do what the gospel does in making these changes. And to understand the importance of waking up to the power of the gospel, I want us to think through four questions today. The first is, why does this matter? I mean, why should we care about nominal or cultural Christianity? I've read, in the last several weeks, I've read several articles just praising cultural Christianity. We should rejoice in cultural Christianity, they said. And yet I don't agree. I think it is an evil and a bad thing. So why should we care about that? Why should we or anyone care about what the gospel does? Well, the answer is in the first part of verse 9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a strong statement. Now, we don't often, as American Christians, we don't often think in terms of the kingdom of God. But essentially... The way to, there's a lot that goes into it, but the, key, the short version for us is it means go to heaven. It means more than that, but for our point today, we're going to stop there. It matters what the gospel does because the unrighteous have no part in the kingdom of God. They don't go to heaven. Those who live unrighteous lives do not go to heaven when they die. But notice at the end, verse the end of verse, well, not the end of verse 9. It goes on, do you not know the unrighteous when I inherit the kingdom of God? But notice this next phrase. Do not be deceived. Now, Paul knows human nature. And as God inspires Paul to write this down, he knows that we are prone to being deceived. We are prone to self-deception in a variety of ways that would lead us to think that it is possible... To live unrighteously and still inherit the kingdom of God. And there are a variety of different kinds of deception that would draw us and cause us to reach this conclusion. One is what we might call the false teaching deception. False teaching deception says the Bible doesn't mean what it says. In a minute we're going to talk about the sins Paul lists in verse 9. And you can Google any of these actions. And you can say, is this unrighteous? Is this a sin? And when you do, you're going to find several million results. And of those several million results, many of them are going to explain why what God calls unrighteous is not unrighteous. Many of their arguments will sound scholarly. And good. They will have all sorts of letters after their name to flaunt the education that they have. 
The problem, though, with their arguments is they don't make the rules about what is righteous and what is not. God does. God is the ultimate and final authority on what counts as righteous and on what counts as unrighteous. And once God has spoken on a subject as he has in his word, then there is no higher court that can come along and overturn God's ruling. We cannot be deceived by those who say what God calls unrighteous. We cannot be deceived by those who would say those things are righteous or they're not bad. They are. Another kind of deception is what I would call the exception deception. Exception deception says I'm the exception to the rule. If we're if we're just really ruthlessly honest, most of us tend to think we ought to be the exception to whatever the rule is. If we're driving 40 miles an hour down Sunset Lane and we get pulled over. We have all of these reasons as to why the officer has too much time on their hands. But if we're driving down Sunset Lane at the right speed and somebody flies past us, we're pretty sure they ought to get a ticket for what they're doing. We did the same thing, but there's a reason why what we did wasn't bad. We're the exception to the rule. Paul writes, do not be deceived because he doesn't want us to think we're the exception to the rule. He doesn't want us to think that God's going to look down at us living in an unrighteous way and say, that's just Stacy, that's how he is. It's not that big of a deal. We cannot be deceived into thinking we're the exception because we're not. The unrighteous have no part in the kingdom of God. Another kind of deception is what we might call the replacement deception. Replacement deception says my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Yes, this action here is unrighteous and it's wrong, but look at all of these good deeds I do. And the number of good things I do is far more than the number of bad things I do. Therefore, it's all going to to work out in the end. Or we'll say, well, yes, I'm disobeying God in this area, but I'm obeying God in all of these other areas. And so it balances out. But that's not what the Bible teaches. We can't compare what we're doing wrong with what we're doing right. And thinking what we're doing wrong then isn't that bad in comparison. We cannot be deceived into thinking so long as our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, we'll be okay. Because we won't be. The unrighteous have no part in the kingdom of God. This is why recognizing and rejecting nominal Christianity matters. This is why recognizing and rejecting cultural Christianity matters. This is why it's important to understand the power of the gospel and what it does. The gospel is powerful to save sinners and sanctify saints. And we cannot be deceived into thinking we or anyone can genuinely believe the powerful gospel and continue to live in unrighteousness. Well, this leads to our second question. What qualifies as unrighteous? If we just looked at that and stopped there. 
I think we would all probably say, oh, I agree, that's right. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then if we were to go around the room and say, what is an action, an unrighteous action? We would have a variety of answers. And there is, despite the variety of answers, there would be one similarity to all of our answers. And unrighteousness would be what other people do and not what we do. Because that's just who we are as people. We are masters at self-justification. We are masters at justifying what we do. God knew this when he had the Apostle Paul write this down. And so he, he gives us some specific acts of unrighteousness. So we're just going to kind of walk through these and, and look at what they mean. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral. Sexual immorality, according to God's word, is sex outside the bonds of a, homos, of a heterosexual marriage. That is always a sin. The term used is, we often translate as fornication. And because of the culture of the time, uh, with the, the priests and the priestesses that they had that were temple prostitutes, you could go there and you could take part in what the priests and priestesses were doing. You could pay and worship the God by sleeping with a prostitute. Or you could watch as others did. Fornication refers not only to the act of sexual sex outside the bonds of a heterosexual marriage, but it also refers to watching, participating as an audience. So it referred to pornography as well as physical sexual immorality. Nor idolatrous. Now, idolatry, if we often think about it, is just bowing down and worshiping some sort of a, an image and saying this is God. And, and to be sure, that is idolatry. But when we look at the, the whole of God's word, Idolatry is much broader than that. There's also what I call mental idolatry. Mental idolatry is when we build an idea about what God is like that is contrary to how God has revealed himself to be. An example of this would be Aaron making the, the golden calf. Now, if you remember the story, he, he makes this golden calf and then he doesn't point to it and say, behold, the cow God. He says, look, this is Yahweh. This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. right? He, he shaped an image of what God was like that was not what God was like. So mental idolatry is when we build an idea about who God is or what God is like that is contrary to how God has revealed himself to be. And again, God has revealed himself, who he is and what he's like in his word. So for example... If God reveals himself to be a God who judges sin, it is idolatry to believe otherwise. If God reveals himself to be a God who cannot be known apart from faith in Jesus, it is idolatry to believe otherwise. If God reveals himself to be anything or act in any way, it is idolatry to believe anything other than what God has revealed about himself. These things are every bit as much idolatry as bowing down to an image. Failure to think rightly about God always leads to the sin of idolatry. But there is also what we might call material idolatry. Material idolatry is where we give someone or something other than Jesus the place of preeminence in our hearts 
and our devotion. Now, an idol can be anything, really. What often happens in idolatry is we take a, a good thing and we make it a God thing. It becomes the most important thing in our lives. Anything that we give central value to and we say, this is more important to me than anything else in the world. And if this is not Jesus, then this could be, this is an idol. An idol could be a house, a car, a job, a hobby, a position, money, sports, our family, spouse or children, comfort, television, sex, possessions, food, pleasure, power, and then perhaps the greatest idol of all, self. I am more important than anything else. Elevating devotion to someone or something other than God is as much as idolatry as bowing down before an image. Then it goes... Neither sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, which I covered that under sexual immorality, nor homosexuals. Homosexuals uh, is described here. Paul in the Greek uses two different words for it. You see it in the King James. If you have a King James, one of them is reflected as effeminate. The two words sort of describe the way homosexuality can be lived out. One uh, refers to men who dress and act like women, translated in the King James as effeminate. The other refers to a man or a woman who has sex with someone other than the, someone of the opposite gender. Right? Homosexuality, despite what month it is in America, homosexuality is an act of unrighteousness, and it does keep people out of the kingdom of heaven. Thieves. Thieves is just simply taking stuff that doesn't belong to you. Greedy, it goes on. Greedy, it, the word for greedy, it means a consuming desire to have more. It talks about a desire that can never be fulfilled. Greedy people can no more satisfy their desire for more than you can fill up a bowl with a bottom broken out of it. Habitual drunkenness. This would include what we might call alcoholics as well as social drinkers who habitually get drunk. Social or drunkenness is always a sin. Nor verbal abusers. Verbal abusers are those who abuse people through their words. And the ways they abuse others through their words are numerous. Ranting and raving, profanity, slanderous speech, continual put-downs, constant criticisms, the sort of slots that make them feel less than. All of those things are ways that people verbal abuse. And verbal abusers have no part in the kingdom of heaven. Nor swindlers. Swindlers are people who take money. And things by people by use of either force or through schemes. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list of what qualifies as unrighteous. We don't have time. But if we did, were to go to look at Mark chapter 7 verses 21 through 23, we would see a similar list. If we were to go to Galatians 5 verses 19 through 21, we would see a similar list. If we were to go to Ephesians 5, 3 through 6, we would see a similar list. And if we were to go to Revelation 21, 8 and verse 27, we would see a similar list. And there are others. No one passage gives us the sum total of what is an unrighteous action. The point of all the lists, the point of all that it tells us, is that it's making clear those who live these kind of lifestyles, that is unrighteous, and it defile us and it keeps us out of the kingdom of heaven. Now, one thing that's important to understand is the difference between a sin, an unrighteous action and a mistake. In our day, 
it's very common to see somebody, particularly I think you see this among politicians, who will cheat on their wife, do something wrong, and then they'll get up in public and they'll say, well, I made a mistake. No. No, that's not a mistake. If you put the wrong date when you make the church bulletins, that's a mistake. But it's not a sin. If you're a verbal abuser or an adulterer, you haven't made a mistake. You're unrighteous. And you have no part in the kingdom of God. Those are not the same things. The gospel is powerful to save sinners and sanctify saints. And this not only changes our eternal destiny, but it changes our daily lives. Which leads to our next question. What changes does the gospel make? If the gospel changes people so they won't be unrighteous, what do these changes look like? We'll look at verse 11. First, notice the folks in Corinth had at one point lived in those very sins. Though they had lived in those very sins and had done those very things, something had happened and they were different. And what had happened was Paul had come. He had preached the gospel. They had believed the gospel. And what happened when they believed made them into something entirely different. Paul describes what happens when we believe the gospel in three ways. First, he says we are washed. When someone believes the gospel, their sins are, as the saying goes, washed away. This action is described in various spots in God's word. Um, it is called washing and regeneration in Titus 3, 5. It's called being born again in John 3 and 3. And washing refers to the initial work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that brings us to faith in the gospel to begin with. And so the, the Holy Spirit is active at all parts in our salvation. Right? All of us at one point, we were unrighteous. But all of us at one point didn't realize we were unrighteous. Then there came a time in which the word, whether someone was preaching or someone was sharing or something happened, and the Holy Spirit began to, to press on us. We call it convicting. And he convinced us. He convinced us that we had sinned against a holy God. He convinced us that our sin had left us without any sort of righteousness of our own. And that this sin and lack of righteousness meant that we would one day face the judgment of God. And because we were hid in that place where we were devoid of sin or devoid of righteousness, basically what he did was he made us see that we were verses 9 and 10. That, that's me. I really am that. I have no part in the kingdom of God. And once we came to realize that, Holy Spirit then reveals Jesus to us. He reveals the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ and how that is for us. How that through Jesus, through the gospel, we could have righteousness. And, and basically what he does is he makes us see that we can be washed, we can be sanctified, and we can be justified if we come to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. This is the Holy Spirit's work in bringing us to salvation. This is necessary because Jesus said no one comes to him unless the Father draws them. Right? So for anyone who's saved here today, we didn't just sit there one day and are like, I need Jesus. The Holy Spirit was at work in us, drawing us to Jesus. We only recognize our sin and our need for salvation after the Holy Spirit begins to reveal these things to us, to press on us about it. 
And then he brings us to the place where we have a choice to make. Will we flee to the Jesus the Holy Spirit is revealing through the gospel? Or will we reject the Jesus the Holy Spirit is revealing through the gospel? Either way, we will decide. Once we choose, if we go to Jesus, we cry out to him for salvation, we're saved. And at that point, we experience the washing and the regeneration and the new birth. We're made, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, an entirely new creation. The old things are passed away and all things have become new. This is that initial work. We're not the same. Now, again, this is, I think, is really important because we may well have been all of these things, but we're not anymore. Once we come to Jesus through faith in the gospel, we are washed, we are cleansed, and we are made something entirely different. And those things are not our identity any longer. Our identity is now in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done. And then once we're washed, then we're sanctified. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. Right? Once we're saved, that initial change, that's not the end. The overall goal of the Christian life is to be as much like Jesus as is humanly possible. And there's a long way to go for all of us. So we are always in the process of being sanctified. We are always in the process of being changed. We are always in the process of having victory over one sin and working our way through another. We are constantly being renewed and being changed. Now, none of this at regeneration or sanctification are surface level changes. I mean, these are big things. This isn't we go from putting on dirty, clean clothes instead of dirty clothes. This is interchanges. It changes our heart. It changes our minds. It changes our desires. It, it changes us at the core of our being. We are not the same anymore through this. And we are justified. Justification is the process where God declares a believing sinner to be free of their just judgment because of this, their faith in the sinless life, sacrificial death, victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we surrender the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and we embrace Christ as Lord, His righteousness is then credited to our account. We are justified. We are given a righteousness not based upon our good deeds, but upon His good deeds. Now, there's nothing you or I could do to bring about the kind of changes that's talked about here. Now, this is where we see the the failure of nominal or cultural Christianity. Nominal or cultural Christianity can change the clothing. It can change an outward appearance. But it can't change our hearts. It can't change our desires. It can't change who we are on the inside. We can't be religious enough to change on the inside. We can't be moral enough to change like this. Only the gospel has the power to save sinners and sanctify saints. Nothing else can do this. And once the gospel changes lives, once it saves sinners and sanctifies saints, they are different. They are not what they used to be. And anyone, listen, this is huge. Anyone who is what they've always been, despite faith in Jesus, does not have faith in Jesus. 
Jesus changes us at the core of our being. And this leads to the next change. How is this change possible? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. We've talked about the Holy Spirit's work. But these changes are only possible because of Jesus Christ. Now this, this is actually a super hopeful passage. We've talked about people not inheriting the kingdom of God. We've talked about acts of unrighteousness. But those things are not the focus of this passage. The focus of this passage is Jesus. And the fact that when we believe in Jesus, He makes us new. The emphasis is on the Jesus who makes unrighteous people righteous. Who takes people who are not part of the kingdom of God and He makes them a part of the kingdom of God. Of course, familiar passage for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. that Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to judge the world. The world through him might be saved. Jesus is an expression of God's great love for sinful humanity. Jesus came to save us. But he didn't save us by an example he set. He saved us by the death he died. A brutal death on a cruel cross. And on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God against our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he was not just being abused and murdered by Romans. He was also taking the fierceness of God's wrath against our sin in our place. The wages of sin is death. But it's not merely physical death. Spiritual death. It's eternal death. Revelation 20 and 14 calls the second death. And it's being cast in the lake of fire for all of eternity. The horrors of hell show us the terrible wrath of God against sin. Jesus took that in our place. It is completely accurate to say Jesus endured hell on the cross. So that we would not have to endure hell in eternity. Jesus endured the hell that I deserve. And Jesus endured the hell that you deserve. When we believe on Jesus, His death on the cross is accounted as punishment for our sin. And His righteousness is then transferred into our account. Through this, God's justice is satisfied because sin has been punished. But it has not been excused. And God declares us then to be righteous through faith In Jesus. No one is righteous apart from Jesus. No one is saved apart from Jesus. But here's where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to say people out there are not righteous apart from Jesus. But I am not righteous apart from Jesus. You are not righteous apart from Jesus. But this is necessary. You and I cannot be saved until we understand and accept our personal unrighteousness and our personal guilt. Without accepting our unrighteousness and our guilt and our inability to save ourselves, we will never really come to Jesus and cry out to Him to save us. Without turning to Jesus, we'll never be saved by Jesus. 
And without being saved by Jesus, we'll never be part of the kingdom of heaven. We'll not go to heaven when this life is over. The gospel is powerful to save sinners and sanctify saints. But these changes cannot be made apart from repentance and faith in Christ. Now, some could say that what we've talked about today is is really stiff. It's too narrow. It's too hard. But Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruit. And we know this in the natural world. If you were to come to my house and I had a tree in my backyard and there were big, beautiful apples on it, you would conclude without a test, without a scientific experiment, that was an apple tree. But imagine you came to me and you saw the apple tree and you saw the apples on the tree and you said, does your tree, your apple tree, normally produce a lot of apples? And in response, I said, it's not an apple tree. It's a peach tree. And you might reply, but I can see it. It's just literally loaded with apples. It's an apple tree. Now, imagine I replied to that. It's just going through a rebellious phase. And that's where the apples come from. But but deep down, it really is a peach tree. Or, or imagine I said, this tree didn't come from the best family of trees. It's given a lot of issues that it has to overcome. And that's why it's producing peaches instead of apples. But it, it's still a peach tree. Or imagine I said, well, <laughs> no tree is perfect, right? You can't expect an apple tree to always produce apples and never produce peaches, can you? Now, if I were to say any of those things, you would likely think I was crazy. Yet these are the same sort of things we say when we claim to believe the gospel and yet live unrighteous lives. These are the same sort of things we say when we claim our loved ones believe the gospel and yet they clearly live unrighteous lives. A tree is known by its fruit. And when the fruit of someone's life is what God calls unrighteous, it reveals their spiritual condition. This is true if it's me. This is true if it's you. This is true if if it's our loved ones. Do not be deceived into believing otherwise. The gospel does not make unrighteousness okay. The gospel is more powerful than that. The gospel saves sinners and sanctifies saints. But this requires us to respond to the message. And the only biblical response given is to repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin, resulting in a change of life. Repentance starts by recognizing God's right and we're wrong. For instance, God's right about our sin. We have sinned. Our sin is serious. Our sin is against Him. And our sin makes us guilty in the courts of heaven and prevents us from being righteous and makes us actually unrighteous. Repentance then leads us to turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Because we begin to change our mind also about the fact that we can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We can't undo what we've done wrong. And faith in Jesus is what motivates this repentance. But faith is... It's not meant in a general way. It's not, I have faith there's a God out there somewhere. That's not a faith that saves. The Bible says the demons believe that and tremble. 
It's not even a faith that says that there was a guy named Jesus who lived and died. What we believe, what we have faith in is very specific and very narrow. We must believe that yes, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. But that he did it for us. He did it for me. He did it for you. To believe in Jesus is to say that what he did on the cross was because of my sins. And what he did on the cross is the only hope for salvation I have. That I'll never be saved by my morality. I'll never be saved by my good deeds. I'll never be saved by my acts of religiosity. I can only be saved by Jesus. And this kind of faith requires us to let go of self-righteousness. It requires us to let go of self-sufficiency. It requires us to grab onto the cross and say, Jesus and Jesus alone is my hope and is my salvation. And if we are hoping in anything other than Jesus for our salvation, we are not saved. Jesus alone saves. And then the natural response, if I repent, God's right and I'm wrong, I believe that. The natural response will then begin to live for Jesus, to follow Him, and do what He wants me to do. These are individual responses that we all must make. No one can repent for you. No one can repent for me. No one can believe for you, and no one can believe for me. We have to do it on our own. And if you have never personally decided to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you today... Come to Jesus and be saved from the wrath to come. Let's stand with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed.